Meditations with Ryan Slomak. Greetings and welcome to the first episode of Meditations with Ryan Slomak. You may be asking yourself, who is Ryan Slomak? Is he some B-grade celebrity hoping to break out of the mold and get his next movie? Is he a comedian trying to rebrand himself? Is he an investigative journalist on the hunt for the next story? Or some weird true crime aficionado who's just really excited to talk about who committed the murder? The truth is, it doesn't really matter who I am. This is a podcast all about making space for conversation, making space to listen to other people's stories. So if you'll join me on this little adventure, we're going to be interviewing and hearing from Ben T. Matchstick and Pete Talbot. They're the creators of the Pinbox 3000, a wonderful cardboard, hands-on science, technology, engineering, and math device used to teach anybody who really wants to know, whether it's youth or adult, how much they can do with their hands if they're willing to just engineer and think through things a little bit. Ben and Pete uh, reside in Vermont and Minnesota, respectively, and they are amazing community organizers, educators, and just wonderful people creating projects all around the country that encourage us to step out of what we think is traditional education and step into a place where we think about learning in more of a hands-on project-based way. In the conversation we're going to talk about their most recent kickstarter their journeys as creators their sort of secret histories in the show business i hope you'll join along get inquisitive and most importantly reach out to them if you like what they're doing ben and pete i really want to thank you guys for for making time to just chat about your sort of entrepreneurial endeavors and your your educational endeavors one of the things that i think is really interesting is that um the two of you are constantly in education, but also have like pretty deep roots in theater. And I was curious about how you guys sort of discovered that theatrical parts of like part of yourselves and decided that you wanted to, uh, to pursue it further and even professionally. Oh, uh, I guess I'll go first. This is Ben. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, it was either football or theater for me. And uh, I think I think I was done with football in high school. So I I went, was going to Chicago for undergrad and there was so much theater there and I'd never really seen anything outside of my community theater. So it seemed like every time the lights came up, I was blown away. And uh, I just happened to be surrounded by some of the most brilliant people <laughs> that you could possibly meet in Chicago theater. And what's amazing about Chicago is like it's working class theater. You know, so there are companies that work out of like loft spaces and garages and puppet theaters that work in abandoned lots. And that all all of that very much excited me. And it, of course, I was like trained to do like classical theater, you know, Shakespeare and Ibsen and Shaw and all of that. But on my, in my senior year at college, I discovered bread and puppet theater. And that kind of broke the mold on all of that stuff. I discarded everything that I learned and I moved up to Vermont and I became a wandering puppeteer with bread and puppet traveling the world, doing outdoor spectacles and working, working my butt off, uh, you know, basically nonstop working. You know, you get paid to be a company member, but there's no hourly wage there. It's it's all the time. So living in school buses, uh, traveling to Europe and Cuba 
and traveling and just meeting people, like meeting amazing people, meeting amazing makers, people who are really engaged in a political process while also doing art, you know, trying to push the conversation in this in a certain direction, doing protest theater, you know, that led to activism and just kind of spiraled into this whole world of like uh, creating something out of nothing using the community. Um, so that has kind of been my my bent for quite a long time. Um, and I guess the you could say the Pinbox 3000 arose from that kind of need to share something uh, that or pulling something out of the ether, you know, pulling something new that has never been seen before and sharing it with the world. Uh, and I always thought of the Pinbox 3000 as like a gravitational self-propelled puppetry. You know, I don't have to be there to perform. You can do it yourself now. <laughs> That's awesome, Ben. And Pete, I, I apologize. I'm going to put you on pause for a second. But uh, Ben, sure. going back, so you went to Northwestern uh, in Chicago, and you're sort of exploring all these, uh, all these different theaters. And I love this idea of like working class theater because that really, I think, ties to the mission of what you guys do uh, through and through. But for bread and puppet, uh, it's bre bread and puppet theater is the correct term, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so for those who are unaware, it, from what I understand, they started in the 1960s. It's a uh, a puppetry group that was very heavily tied to anti-war protests. Um, and they, they, they what, they uh, had the arguably one of the largest protests ever with over 500,000 people coming as part of like their sort of puppetry uh demonstration in New York City, uh, which is kind of interesting. I'm curious for you, like what um, what about what they did that sort of grassroots uh, approach to things really called to you, especially having spent all this time in the Windy City? Right. Well, you know, we were trained to think that theater was expensive and theater was uh, exclusive. And as soon as I stepped foot in Glover, Vermont with Bread and Puppet, it was like, no. It's for everybody and it's cheap and you should do it all the time and you should make mistakes and it should be under rehearsed and loud mm -hmm. and obnoxious. And even if people don't want to see it, they should see it. <laughs> so it kind of uh, it was kind of great to get like in the span of like 10 years or, uh, you know, from when I started my undergrad to then just to see both sides of that coin and to see like, yeah, we need we need all of this, you know, and. Uh, I think, I think just, it was a very much of an unlearning process, you know, like, uh, thinking that, you know, coming out of school thinking, oh, well, I'm special. I'm an actor, you know, I've been, I'm a trained actor. I'm special. I'm going to, I'm going to get a role because I've worked this hard, but then meeting people who weren't actors who were doing these amazing things in theater. And I was like, I really started to rethink and recalibrate what it meant to be, even be a performer and quite frankly, even to be a maker, you know, sloppy puppets were like a whole genre, you know, this and that, that uh, when we first talked, uh, we started talking, you know, you and I, we were talking about puppets and punk, uh, you know, punk music. And there was a whole category, a subcategory of puppets called uh, puppet, puppet punk, you know, so these were like punks who were like going around to anti-authoritarian anarchists uh puppeteers who were living communally and traveling around and and i got absorbed into all of that so it was really a big shock to my system coming from a very middle class uh you know white suburban kind of environment to kind of have my whole foundation shook 
That's awesome. So, uh, you know, listeners at home, the way the three of us connected, uh, everybody thinks it's through pinball. I own a pinball arcade. These guys own a, uh, you know, a, a, a pinball maker company. Um, but we actually connected because of a, a punk band from Vermont. Shout out to From the Ground Up, who's uh, one of our yeah. favorites, uh, which is just kind of a fun little thing. Everything is interconnected. I love it. Uh, Pete, can you tell us a little bit about your sort of theater group background and how you you brought yourself to that uh, sort of performative maker aspect of your life? It's really funny because it's totally opposite. But um, so I actually feel like I'm an, an extroverted introvert. Like I'm shy. You wouldn't know, but I am. And what I like about the pin box is that it's my way of performing where the attention is on this thing and not me. It's like wearing a mask. Right. But like when you when you put on a costume where you can't be seen anymore, like for me, it's freeing because I can like I, I'm this other character. You know, people are like looking at this other character. And so, you know, I, I took acting in high school, but I would always forget my lines. And it was because I would just kind of I don't know, I'd freeze up and it would just I would I was very aware of people looking at me. You know, but if it was a a show, a puppet show or like something where I'm like wiggling, you know, some cardboard or something like that, then it's like, oh, everybody's focused on this and I'm focused on that thing. And it gives me brain space to be able to remember what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so um, with the pin box, it's, you know, I, I can do all of this work, this rehearsal and all of these, you know, it's, it's still this performative thing, but the... Um, it's like being backstage. I like being backstage more and creating the environment of a show than actually being in the show. <laughs> what was Pete? What so, was, I, I yeah. think it's interesting that sort of like layering and the, 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 I don't know, objectives or the, the obstacles we put between us and the audience in order to mm -hmm. still contribute, but kind of not be center stage. What was it yeah. for you that like, what was the first moment where you were either doing something backstage or you fabricated something that made you know that this type of uh, process was something that you were enthusiastic about? Hmm. Um, let's see. Well, I can remember it was probably not the first time, but there was a, a time that really stuck out. I was in Austin, Texas, and I was working for this puppet company called Trouble Puppet, who are they're awesome totally badass great um and tr i was making puppets and sets for trouble puppet and i hadn't really done it at that scale or like that with that material before and um and i just remember trying out some some stuff for like this big set where the it was actually inside this person's brain and you were seeing this little pilot go from like this cool looking crazy machine to this other cool crazy looking machine and you know oh it's the limbic system and oh i'm going over here to this this other system it was actually just like gears and and like levers and stuff and i got to make a bunch of that stuff and I, and then i just got really excited seeing the actors interact with all of the stuff that i had made and how cool it looked to see them do that. And I was like, oh, I really love this. It's like I get to see the show and also be in it in a way. So that was that was really cool for me. Cause like if you're in the show, you can't see it. 
unless it gets recorded, but it's like, that's not really the same. So I get to have the best of both worlds. So <laughs> that's kind of like where that clinched it for me. That's um, fun. Trouble Puppet. I, I didn't mean oh, to cut yeah, you off. Trouble, Sorry, Pete. Oh, no, it's okay. Oh, yeah. Trouble Puppet in Austin, Texas. Awesome. And um, I, I think it's the same way. Like when I see people have fun playing the pen box, it's that same kind of feeling. I'm like, ooh, they're, they're playing it. And then I get to, you know, make the thing and see people have fun doing it. It's like, oh, this is awesome. Well, I, I'm I'm intentionally holding off on the pinbox thing. We'll get there. We'll get there shortly. Oh, oh, but I think sorry. there's a lot. No, no, it's fine. I think there's just a lot about you guys that's really interesting sort of leading up to this. The other thing that I'm yeah. curious about is you've you both, I mean, even actively today are working in uh, you know, summer programs for students and you're you've always been working with 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 kids creating curriculum especially things that are hands-on um and i'm curious about what kind of brought you guys into those spaces what made you feel like education was a a part of your career that you wanted to explore ben do you want to start on that one yeah sure um well you know my education was pretty straightforward you know i didn't have any of the kind of avenues that kids might have these days you know project-based learning wasn't a thing and i think you know it it comes down to like, I knew kind of in my bones that this was the way to learn, to grab materials, to have a goal, to experiment, to make mistakes, to retool. And I think it's, it's like that every time you try to do something. So why wouldn't you teach students this same process? You know, if you were going to repair a refrigerator, you need to like pull it out, look at the parts, inspect it you know, learn what they all do. Like, it, it is so intuitive to me, you know? That is a learning process that I think, you know, 95% of citizens should have a, um, should have um, access to. So I think uh, it came about, uh, my interest came about from, you know, doing all these workshops that we did at Bread and Puppet. You know, we'd show up at a college or a high school and maybe we'd do a puppet making workshop and this was a point where I was really getting into cardboard, of course, and I would start bending cardboard into basic shapes and maybe doing it a little more entertaining than they were anticipating. But I was amazed at how magical it was, actually, just how seeing people like kind of marvel at the fact that you could take a flat piece of board, turn it into a sphere, turn it into a cylinder. And then what happens when you start recombining those shapes and making you know, costumes and large puppets and uh, parade items and, uh, you know, basically anything you want, you know, any kind of shape that you could dream of, you could kind of make it into this. And I didn't have any engineering training. You know, my father was an engineer, my brother is an engineer, and I was an artist. I never thought of myself as a visual artist, but here I was like trying to make all this stuff happen, realize all these uh, potentials uh, for sets and objects and puppets and I was really teaching myself how to do this stuff. I couldn't really quantify like how, like how that all began. Like, and I still pretty much don't consider myself a visual artist, but I just think that when I see kids do this process, I think they are not given enough opportunity to do this kind of stuff. They, they don't give a, they just don't get the space and the time and the encouragement uh, and the materials to follow through with, um, you know, a project. Awesome. Pete, what about you? Like, how'd you find yourself in the sort of educational spaces? 
Um, well, I am the oldest of five kids, and I feel like I often would show my younger siblings how to do things, or do like, or I'd want to share with them uh, how to do the fun things that I had figured out. You know, at you know being the oldest, like, oh, check it out. You know, this is really cool. Let me teach you how to do this. And so, um, and then my mom um, has been an art teacher. Um, she retired a couple, just a couple years ago, but she has, you know, was an art teacher for the majority of my life. And um, my dad was a teacher and I felt drawn towards teaching. Um, I also, and also art. So since I was a little kid, I've always just been like, I want to be an art teacher. And that was kind of like, you know, that was the thing. I, just, I wanted to be an art teacher. And so um, I went to Johnson State College for K through 12 art ed. And I did my practicum. And then at the end of my practicum, I'm like, wow, that was stressful. <laughs> it was actually a lot more stressful than I had anticipated. Um, and I didn't actually like classroom teaching. And the way that it was, you know, if I followed that avenue, it would be just, that would be it. I would just be in the classroom teaching. And I really like, so, well, okay. So I pivoted there and then um, I had just graduated in college and then I met Ben at that point. And so I feel like, and then that that's a story that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but at that time I was like, well, geez, I just did all this work. And now I kind of just realized that I don't want to do the thing that I just did all this work for. I had a ton of, you know, training and, and, um, insight into like how to set up a learning, um, you know, opportunity and how to present things so that different ages could, uh, absorb it. But, I was like, all right, well, I kind of have to like reconfigure what I want to do. And so then I, I connected with Ben and did a bunch of um, teaching in a way where it was like at music festivals or it was at summer camps or, you know, little, little moments instead of this like marathon, like long-term classroom situation. It was like high energy short time period entertaining and then you're done and you can take a nap you know <laughs> so um i realized that i like that kind of style better and it and it works better with my um organizational style um which is lacking um but it also works with uh you know just my just my energy levels you know i have i feel like a cheetah where i can like go hard and fast and then i'm just for a short amount of time and then like okay i'm done <laughs> i well, gotta I was, recharge <laughs> i was just thinking to myself like what would the name of pete talbot's energy drink be called and it sounds like cheetah uh so yeah, yeah. you know we need your your educational energy drink marketing it's it's right there yeah. uh but you gave me the perfect segue which is how did you two connect because there's i just love the inherent I mean, I, I sit there and I think about the characteristics of like people who are interested in alternative education, project-based learning, obsessed with cardboard is the one where there's like the asterisk next to it. Uh, how did you two connect? How did you find each other? 
Uh, ben, do you want me to say? Do you want me to I tell think you should. Like... I think you should go. Except, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, like I'll I'll say it, and then then you, you every time you're like, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a myth at this point. Yeah. Okay. There I was. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I had just graduated college, um, and I was just back in town in Montpelier, back in Montpelier, Vermont, and I was. Um, you know, I had time on my hands for the first time in like five years. And so I was like, Hey, what's, I saw a friend and I was like, Hey, what's going on? What's new? You know, is anybody doing anything cool in town? And they said, Hey, there's this guy, Ben Matchstick. And he's over by the Purilisk, um, which I knew as the salt shed, which is this old like hockey rank. It had turned into this art space called the Pyralisk, which unfortunately no longer exists. Um, really cool spot. But so I, I, I walked down to the train tracks and I got to the Pyralisk and I walked in and then I saw there's just a bunch of crap on the floor of the hockey rink, you know, this like cement uh, asphalt kind of spot and I walk over and I'm like what is this place and you know if sound it, it kind of it, there was like billowing plastic walls you know and I like go and I and I open up this one and I find this person seated at this throne of cardboard just sitting there staring I was like are you Ben the matchstick you're like you raise your head up and you're like yes <laughs> i was like can i help you do stuff <laughs> and then you're like yeah i gotta make a pirate show a pirate game show and i was like cool let's do this and so <laughs> yeah that's exactly how it happened by the way in my mind just now there was a, it was the imagery was way better and cooler than i actually explained it but um it's all right um so we spent what was it three days or something like that we busted out the um this pirate themed game show um for mystery fun night and um that was awesome and i was just like oh my god you introduced me to the cardboard stapler mm-hmm. um at that moment and then before then i i was constructing you know i i wasn't actually doing a lot of cardboard building i had done a lot of of um I'd use cardboard a lot, but it wasn't my main uh, material. And so you were like, yeah, you can do anything with cardboard. This is great. Let me show you how to make stuff really quickly. And so this cardboard stapler is, it's used for putting boxes together, right? And um, and so you just went chunk, chunk, and then attached two pieces of cardboard in a pretty strong way. And my mind was blown. I'm like, okay, let's do this. And so Mystery Fun Night was hilarious and awesome. And it just kind of made me realize that there's this whole other avenue of teaching people things, whether it's how to do something or just how to have fun. And so that was like, it totally sparked my my passion for just an avenue of creativity so thanks man thanks pete that's awesome yeah 
<laughs> your listeners might be wondering what a mystery fun night is. They oh, yeah. they probably could use some clarification. <laughs> yeah, so that's a deep cut. That's a Montpelier, Vermont deep cut. It uh, goes back to uh, Langdon Street Cafe. It was a cafe that I used to co-own with my now partner, my now wife, Meg Hammond, and a collective of people. Mystery Fun Night was a calendar date assigned to me uh, in the first calendar, the first full calendar year of booking these events at the cafe, mostly a music venue. But my friend uh, Noah Hahn had made this calendar for uh, January. And he said, well, I put this date on the last Tuesday of the month called Mystery Fun Night. Do you want to do that? And I said, sure. And it became the last Tuesday of every month thereafter. And it was like a, an immersive puppetry, interactive, improvisational, experiential uh, show. And every month was a different theme and people would come dressed according to the theme. So I think the first one that we did was Oops, we double booked the church basement. And so we had, <laughs> yeah. a, we had a battle of the bands plus a bingo night. Uh, and everyone <laughs> came dressed up as senior citizens. And uh, I think like three new bands came out of that. Oh, that was the thing. You had to you had to be a new band to compete in the battle of the bands. So we actually ended up form. They were like we formed like there were three new bands formed out of that show. And then we did, you know, there was just like, a you know, a, a summer camp theme. There was like. Uh, you know, an oh, 80s yeah, arcade, which we ended up being called Grotto Blaster, which was a show that Pete and I did many years later, like 10 years later. Anyway, that night uh, spawned a lot of collaborations with a lot of different people. I would it would be like I would attract I would kind of recruit like five or six people like Pete or other creatives and be like, hey, what are you good at? OK, cool. Let's put that into the theme. OK, what are you good at? Oh, you speak Spanish. Let's make a Spanish immersion uh, mystery fun night or I would just do all these like little collaborations. And I love that part because I would try to, you know, try to, you know, give people what they were good at and frame what they were skilled at doing into this show. So through all the, you know, several years of doing Mystery Fun Night, I got to collaborate with like almost everybody in town, it seemed like. Yeah. Um, really fun way to do theater, too, by the way. And then people would show up with a lot of stuff like people would end up like Pete, you and I did. We ended up doing like a, I was thinking about this the other day. A, a New Year's party about the future. We did like a futuristic oh, yeah. New Year's party. You and I were the doormen and we were dressed as uh, wind-up robots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was ridiculous. It was so fun. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about that. You and I, it was like our first time we we're like standing across from each other. We spent the, all of New Year's like just being goofy robots in the little Yeah, I'd be like, cafe. hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the cafe. Oh yeah, we made up all these like yeah, it was really funny it was really really ridiculous hello welcome i would like to show you the way to the bar yeah <laughs> oh that's yeah. amazing so it's that's really interesting i had i had langdon street cafe you know like having researched that it's this like cooperative it is a cafe right it's it's a functioning food business well uh, it's yeah that, it's it's closed now in 2012 but yeah but but I but the thing that I thought thought was really interesting is it's an employee-owned business. It's a business that that's based and successful only if collaboration is successful. Uh, and it's this business that has this whole legacy behind it. If you go and look online, there's all these write-ups about you know uh, the space and and how much it meant to people, which I think is really for cool. Sure, for sure, yeah, uh, for sure. So you guys meet in this sort of like Game of Thrones meets Mister Rogers kind of way, and then. <laughs> 
Uh, you know, I this mystery fun night thing, I think I might have to capitalize and steal at some point because I think there's something just to be said about if you have a space and you bring people together, eventually you realize the skills, talents, um, and and willing to give that people have, and that always turns into some sort of collaboration. Um, oh, I, I think you have to frame it as this is immersion. So you can't ever start by saying, we're starting the show now, everybody. Is everybody ready to start the show? You start the show by saying, uh, welcome to the church basement. My name is Randy, Pastor Randy, and I'm here to, yeah. to let's start with a with a with a an early bird special. Here we go. The first letter is B six. You know, you yeah. just gotta dive right into it and just hope people will get get your drift and come along. Yeah, it reminded me too of the other collaboration, uh, the Gladiator, which also was a way for us to get more people on a smaller scale to be part of something. Explain and, that and then, before yeah, you go so on, the, explain what it oh, is. Oh no, no, yeah, yeah. So um the gladiator was a used cigarette vending machine um that i drove i forget it was like pennsylvania or something like that and i drove down and i i picked it up and i was so excited and got it on ebay or something like that and um brought it back set it up and then ben and i were like uh how are we going to do this and so we we figured out all these little paper craft ways to make um you know essentially cigarette packs that were that we could pass out to people but it was like more of like the matchstick box style um ways that people could then grab that container make art put it in there give it back to us and then we could vend it out of the machine um and it was so much fun. There was so many cool little things that we sold out of the the uh, gladiator. And it was like, you know, we didn't make any money at all. It was it was the the artist made, you know, half and the amount of effort and time was like we, we yeah, we just didn't know. It was it was a it was a <laughs> you know project of, of passion. It was a labor of, of love, yeah. Totally. And like but it was all the things were so fun. Like I spent so much time making these little, I found one recently, but I was making these little, I took cigarette packs and I painted over them and I turned them into these little bats, these little puppets where you pull a string on the bottom and like the, the, the top was like, and like opened up and you could, it would barf out these little like bugs that I had, you know, laminated and put in a sense, like wings would go shrink out the sides of you pulling on a string. And I was like, Oh my God. I spent so much time. You know, when you when you I sold it for three (laughs) dollars. Yes, when you meet somebody who's as ridiculous as you are, um, it's you. You start going down these these avenues that you you can't pull yourself out of. You know these these places where you're like, how ridiculous could we be together with (laughs) our combined powers? Yeah. So yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, the gladiator. Yeah, good times. And then, but oh, so fun. But like. So that and spending all the time making these really cool, intricate things, I, yeah, it was it, like I logged that in my mind as like, wow, there's a lot of effort I had to do every time I wanted to make this thing. So then later on, when I got introduced to technology, that was um, that was a really nice um, upgrade because I could spend time 
doing something intricate and only have to spend the time doing something intricate once. And then it was like logged. Well, Pete, you're the, you're officially the master of the segue today. Um, (laughs) So you guys, uh, I I could listen to these, I could listen to these, these projects all day, but I I do want to get ourselves to uh, the cardboard tech Institute, uh, which I can never uh, get it. out there. Uh, but yeah. you, you guys have created a, a, a I'm going to call it a project called the, the Pinbox uh, 3000, which has sold over 30,000 units. And we'll pretend that McDonald's hasn't been using numbers for the last you know several decades to market, but that's a ton of material and a ton of uh, people who've had a chance to experience this this project. So can you, for listeners at home, people who are kind of unfamiliar with it, what what's the elevator pitch on the Pinbox 3000? The Pinbox 3000 is a flat packed die cut cardboard pinball machine kit that you can punch out these 37 different shapes, fold them together and without any glue or tape or anything. Uh, after one hour, you will have assembled a desktop tabletop sized pinball machine for you to customize and play it runs on rubber bands and gravity uh and it works like any other pinball machine would it comes with interchangeable play fields so you can pop open the hood of this game and take out the uh, playboard and swap it with another one when you have two pinbox 3000s you can connect them back to back and then you can pass marbles back and forth between the two games what's great about it is it invites uh a kind of maker experience once you have assembled the pinbox 3000 hopefully you'll feel inspired by cardboard and paper to kind of begin to craft your own unique game in a kind of a, a a little diorama space it's like a miniature maker maker space that you have there so using all the household supplies and office supplies markers tape glue scissors anything that you have around the house designing little kinetic sculptures inside your Pinbox 3000. Um, that's the kind of invitation to uh, the maker experience that the Pinbox 3000 uh, invites. I think the thing that makes your product so fascinating to me is that, you know, you're always, you're whenever you own a company, whenever you create a product, whenever you have any relationship with the public, you're always trying to sway perception in some way. And the thing that everybody I find focused on with your uh, with your invention is that oh, it's a cardboard pinball machine. And for me, when I see it, and when I see the potential, what the pen, uh, the potential is, it's a process and a project that you're investing in. You're you're giving yourself or your kids or your students uh, the opportunity to go through this entire process to build something, see what fabrication feels like and let the subconscious part of your mind apply to it, whatever you want. And I think that that to me is the part that really makes uh, the pin box just such a cool invention because it's a, it's a cool, you know, cardboard pinball machine. My favorite part that I was reading about today is like, it hangs nicely on your wall. I was like, that is a (laughs) solid selling point. Um, My mom, that's my mom. (laughs) She was like vertical, vertical store. So my mom, um, when I was designing 
um, at the house, I would, I would like, you know, sit down with the pin box at night and, you know, I had all my prototypes that had the fresh scent of, of laser cut, um, burn, you know, scorch scent on it. And I was like, you know, I'm just trying to work out, you know, different aspects of the game. And, um, I, I was like, Hey mom, uh, do you have any suggestions about, you know, this thing? She's like, well, vertical storage because you just it's like where are you going to put this thing where is somebody <laughs> going to put this cardboard pinball machine like on a kitchen table it's like what just for store it vertically it's like okay awesome and so yeah just a little notch on the back of it allows you to just hang it on the wall and it becomes this art piece which is really cool too it's like it, it's yeah it's i love it <laughs> well so what was the you know, like from what I understand, you guys, you're collaborating together, you create a cardboard pinball machine, you take it to an event, you realize how much people love it, or at least that's the, you know, the mythos that had been bestowed to me uh, in our in our conversations. At what point did you guys decide that the rest of the world would benefit from having this type of project accessible to them? Well, that's kind of why we went to Kickstarter because we was we were the first version. We were like, well, let's just see if we could, you know, just make enough to, you know, supply a handful of people. We didn't really know how much it was going to cost, you know. So the first one we did, we, we raised just fifteen thousand dollars. We thought that was incredible. We had like never <laughs> seen that amount of money before, and by some miracles, you know, with some local help of like cardboard manufacturers. We got our first fulfillment out there, and uh, actually, Make Magazine like had a big mm. put in a big order for it too, and that was huge for us. We we thought that we were like we were riding high. We just thought this is going to be a thing. This we're going to do it. Um, that was only after we had been to our first Maker Fair. You know, we I remember the day that we got uh, accepted into the uh, the National Maker Fair in Washington D.C. We thought this was a huge deal. We had no idea. Like, the, the, apparently, they were accepting like two makers from every state, but I think we were like two two people that applied. <laughs> I think that I don't think people really knew about it. But we a made it. Recommended that we should do it, and when we showed up there with our prototypes, we had probably eight games. Uh, you know, Pete was uh, editing the Kickstarter video on the drive down in the in the van that we had what we had rented. <laughs> and when we got to the hotel room, we still hadn't like finished the design of the game. So I pulled out all the craft materials and I was sitting on one table and one bed, I think, like crafting all these games, you know, the mm -hmm. themes of the games while Pete was editing the Kickstarter on the other side. <laughs> so I think we just had this like momentum about it. It was like we had he, he and I, Pete and I had been like putting our energy into these little short term projects. And I think we saw both of us that like, this thing could be like a thing, you know, like people could really get into this. And we had no idea what the pinball community was like. We had no idea about the maker community. We just had a mm -hmm. shared love of cardboard, really. <laughs> and it's, we also like when we got to the fair, I mean, it was, it was a whirlwind getting to the fair. We got there and then we show this crazy little invention people were like this is incredible for steam and uh, we were both like yeah tell me about it <laughs> <We're> like, 
Please what? tell me about what? it. Steam. <laughs> yeah, what yeah, is what it? What is are you that? talking about? It's not steam powered. It's rubber bands. It's gravity, actually. So, <laughs> and then they were like, no, it's, you know, a scientific. This is like, it's, you know, it was really funny. We were just like, oh. That, that was the other reveal yeah. that we, we had no idea about that. <laughs> the steam community, you know, the maker, the educational push for steam projects. Yeah, um, for, yeah, so for that those, was a whole reveal. For those listening at home who are not in the educational space, uh, STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Um, and there's a big push right now, rightly so, as uh, I think mm-hmm. uh, Ben pointed out in regards to skills that we want to make sure young people have, uh, just to make sure there's more hands-on uh, education out there, and also to be able to see the interconnection of all the diff- all these different disciplines, uh, because oftentimes we think about siloing everything, and, and STEAM is a movement that's intended to bring everything together so that students can see, like, oh, if I'm doing this math problem in my geometry class, that completely ties in with the you know the engineering problem I'm solving in you know my class with a different teacher, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. When when you guys first got started, I. Uh, you were working with a, what was a generator in in Burlington in order to try to make uh, make everything, and that's a, that's a makerspace kind of mm-hmm. co- collaborative in Burlington. Is that yep. correct? Yes, it's a it's a makerspace in Burlington that has right now they have about two hundred full time uh, um, uh, attendees. Members. <laughs> what do they call members? Yeah. Members. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a gym, like getting a membership at a gym, except instead of weights you have uh, laser cutter 3d printers uh, sewing machines uh, woodworking tools metal shop jewelry shop um, a computer lab and it's a great space for you could have a little studio of your own and it's a great space for sharing and collaborating your work so you're working collaboratively in a studio space but you know across the way you could have a guy who's you know coding for a video game and over here somebody's turning bowls and other guys making flutes you know so you start to have these cross pollinations of ideas and shared experiences then you have you know some uh, interested parties coming in who want to talk to you about what you're doing and maybe want to invest or you might have some advisors come in and help you you know get your business started or talk to you about trademarks things like that so it just it's a great way to kind of foment this kind of entrepreneurism uh, from two people, Pete and I, who were basically came at it from as from as from an artist standpoint, then kind of converting our thinking and our mind space into entrepreneurism and how to change something into a product, not just a one off. We could do an entire show about this next question. So I'm just curious about for each of you, what was like a a, a hurdle or uh, something that you really learned while you had that first step? Uh, you, your Kickstarter has been successful. All of a sudden, you have to make X amount of pin box widgets, ship them out, things like that. What was some portion of that process that was really informative to you as you were uh, kind of constantly scaling your business up? Um, I think we learned very quickly, you know, we got a deal with a, uh, a storefront that had 41 locations around the country. And we thought, Mm. oh, this is perfect. This is an experience. It was marbles, the brain store. It's an experiential space. You go in and you're all the staff is trained on every product. They have like a session where they teach every salesperson about each product so they can sell it and we just thought this is great like we're gonna go yeah. we're gonna go places like 
by Christmas time, we'll be rolling, we'll be, you know, selling all over the country. And uh, then that's, then they went out of business. They went bankrupt. <laughs> and we had lost $21,000 from that deal and the product. We never saw the inventory that we shipped out ever again. And it was yeah. like, the, that was like the second run of our, of our production. I think what we learned immediately is like, this is business. That is how business, that's how business works. Sometimes you get massively screwed <laughs> and you have to really think about your decisions very carefully and who you work with very carefully and all the contracts that pass by your, your desk. You've got to look and be very conscious of what is happening around you and plan your strategy uh, so you can mitigate some of those risks here and there. Um, you know, it, it was all, we were all smelling roses that whole time, you know, leading up to that. And then you're like, Ooh, but I remember I felt the pain like for one whole day. And then the next day I was like, if you can't bounce back from something like this, then you shouldn't be in business. Yeah. Pete, were there any yeah. other sort of like learning moments for you that really stand out in those, the early years of the Pinbox 3000? Um, I feel like just trying to keep my mind open to different avenues of solutions. Like it was the the laser allowed us to fail so fast. Like be like, oh yeah, that shape does not work. Okay, let's try it again. Oh, that doesn't work. Let's try it again. No, let's try it again. No, and then, oh, it's perfect. Save that one, you know? And so, but then like, I, I feel like I get stubborn sometimes in the, what I feel like is the right avenue for a solution or for like, you know, um, and it helped me to like look at the, the perceived barriers and um, to a, to a solution and be like, okay, well, well, what if that isn't the case? And so that was more of the design route of things, you know, and, um, and, but it also helped with like, oh, well, you know, if we want to give this to people, can, how can we, you know, frame this in a way that it's going to, you know, be a feature and not a flaw, you know, because it sometimes people can be like, oh well, it, I have to assemble it, and be like, well, actually, that is a huge part of what's fun about this, uh, this little thing, and so I don't know, just kind of like helping me see things um, from different angles. It's very funny yeah. that you mentioned that because Pete and I have this relationship where he's the lead designer. And I'm the editor. So when we have a new piece or new something, he shows it to me with very, I'll say. very <laughs> trepidatiously. Boom, done. <laughs> he's like, like nailed it, it. And, you know, it's yeah. like, and then there's always this moment he's like, please be gentle, you know, and I'll say, well, <laughs> here's what I'm thinking from this, you know, my perspective of like handling this for the first time. And we have this whole process as part of our friendship. I think that, you know, he's like, he trusts me to give him feedback that's honest 
And I trust him to be able to take the feedback and not get, you know, not get bent out of shape too much. Yeah. You know, it's like, maybe this is the right idea, but we should explore this and this. And, you know, he and I, Pete and I speak the exact same language. There's no other person that can give this feedback for Pinbox 3000 on these designs. I'm the only one really who, I mean, there's probably a few others, but because I know how the whole system works and how it all, and all these parts integrate with everything else and all the features that we've already introduced that could, you know, that could uh, kind of stack on top of one another. I think that, makes it so that pete and i speak a very alien language uh, when other we're people like, listen in we're like oh yeah okay this dongle is gonna have to have us nudge the smash force no it's um, more like the, uh, zone. yeah the uh yeah the uh the, uh, the center uh the center wall could be trimmed a little bit to the to the lower piece and yeah just yeah. Like, it's a yeah. little strange like the lexicon is really the crush weird. protector needs to be yeah. nudged. Yeah. Well, so like, that, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean that that dialogue has clearly led to some really successful evolution. So you guys do this first one. You're utilizing this makerspace. You fifteen thousand dollar Kickstarter building on a hotel, you know, bed being successful at uh, you know Maker Fair. Which, for the record, I don't care whether there are two or two hundred people applied from Vermont. You guys got in. Take the accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. <laughs> Uh, you know, you move on, you do a second Kickstarter. Uh, I believe you break six figures or become pretty close to it, which is, you know, amazing. Um, and you start to develop relationships with a cardboard manufacturer in Philadelphia. Uh, and you start to develop other uh, relationships. The two of you end up becoming a uh, completely domestic U.S. company where one of you is based in Vermont, one of you is based in Minnesota. Um, and now you're starting this sort of next era, this next evolution. Uh, you guys just launched this Kickstarter, uh, which at the time of this airing is going to have about 10 days to go, um, where you're creating, uh, as Ben describes, cartridges for your console. You, uh, The pin box has a really great feature where you can lift up one piece of it you can pull out a playfield. Uh, when you buy your game, you get two playfields. You can design a new one, pop it in. Um, and you guys are doing a Kickstarter right now for Neon Wizard and House of Shadows. Uh, and the other thing that I want to point out, too, is that it's also a really good jumping on point for anybody who's interested in, in using these machines, whether it's in your classroom with your students, you know, with your, your family at home. Uh, you're like me and you need something to entertain you every moment of the day. And it's going to be Pinbox Day on Thursday. Uh, but it's a chance to be able to buy Pinbox units uh, and be able to get sort of uh, definitive games out there. So. Can you guys tell me a little bit about uh, what the goals are for this Kickstarter, both for the client and then also for you guys as a company? Well, first, as a company, we've really uh, heard our customers who say, I built it, but I never got to design, never got around into designing a game. And we thought, well, people should just have a game in the box that they can play with. And so and they it was always our ambition to have like multiple games out there. So we always said, oh, this is going to be really fun when we start designing the games. And I think like once we have a collection of games, people will really be inspired by the variety of shapes and obstacles and targets that you can get out of just simple paper craft. And what's cool about this uh, project with the Kickstarter, the newer one, uh, these parts are going to be die cut, just like the pin boxes die cut. And they're going to have uh, tabs on them so that it will slot directly into the play field. So the play field will have uh, slots and the the parts will tab directly into it. So it's it's more like a continuation of the same build process that you had when you assembled the pin box. 
now you won't have to sticker or glue anything on. You could just continue to build and watch this game kind of materialize before your eyes. And, you know, the shapes are really robust. The artwork is incredible. We've, we're working with two, we're working with an artist in Burlington named Michael Tan and a graphic designer, Rachel Severance, who are bringing these games to life, uh, putting all the, the rule sets right on the game boards. Uh, we'll have assets like stickers and some of the, the Neon Wizard in particular has 3D printed parts that you can uh, integrate into these shapes. There's also a potential for electronics integration with a new paper paper target system. Um, that is a very, you know, that's a very deep kind of mode that you go into when you get into electronics and scoring. But it does show that you can have an opportunity to modify and customize these games uh, in addition to just enjoying them as they are. Um, you know, we're going to have steely balls, you know, metal balls with magnets that you could integrate into your games. And hopefully people will feel will see the potential of what's to come after we get these first two games launched, um, because we think this is kind of the future of our like the hobby of paper craft cardboard pinball machine making. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very niche a hobby. <laughs> I might. I might disagree with that slightly. I think that the, you know, the value of this is that there's always that element of when I see something and I do something, I then understand the procedures behind it much better. And, you know, one of the issues with the pin box, which, you know, just full disclosure, I, uh, you know, was a computer science teacher at a, at a public uh, pre-K through 12 school for a decade. And we, in my sixth grade class, collaborated with the art teacher. Uh, you know, she took the templates to develop different designs and taught kids the Photoshop skills to put all that together. I talked to them about the history of pinball and, and showed them how to integrate, uh, you know, different elements and what different mechanics are. But still, at the end of the day, a kid's hearing it from an adult or they're watching a YouTube video or they're pulling up a reference picture online. They're not necessarily able to see what does a ramp look like in a game um, or what does a, you know, habit trail uh, you know, look like, or how can I make additional flippers function? Whereas when they're able to get their hands on these kits, once they build it, they understand those procedures. Um, oh, that's the way in which I can, you know, have three balls play at the same time because of this little balance mechanic. I would have never thought about that. What if I change this other thing? And I think it allows the, you know, the builders, the creators, the people that are getting a hold of these uh, mechanics to understand how you guys are brainstorming it and then say, if Pete and Ben can do this, what if I try it myself? And I think it really uh, helps fill that, that void of, you know, okay, here's the blank canvas. And if you ever ask any student what the most anxietous thing is, it's when you say, just go do it. And mm -hmm. you don't provide any structure. And this provides that structure that I think is sometimes missing in those, those project-based learning exercises. Yeah, in fact, in our in our standard kit, the make we're going to rebrand as the Maker Edition. We're going to start providing more uh, paper templates and uh, and just blank paper for you to uh, design and craft your own obstacles with a lot more instructional things. Um, because, mm -hmm. like like you said, you said it so well. It's like we want to bring people along our journey into experimenting with paper and cardboard, uh, just because it's so it's so fun and rewarding, you know, and challenging. Um, and like you said before, like the challenges are recurring. You'll solve one problem, but then another little problem will occur. So it's a 
problem solving, problem generating kind of loop that a student can fall into, which is on top of this layer of game design, which I think makes it really fun to solve problems. So when you say, yeah, I play pinball, that's like one thing. But when you play Pinbox 3000, it's like, you can actually call this playing pinball, Pinbox 3000. Like by designing your own games, that's another form of playing. You know, and I don't think people really see that as like as a game designer. I think that's that's really where it like really catches kids a lot. Where it's like, oh, I'm the game designer. And the theater part is where I have an audience. I have to make my make my audience feel like they're the hero of the story and they're inspired to to do this nonlinear gravitationally powered story. They're gonna participate in my story. So that's why I love the kind of art and kind of engineering integration of Pinbox 3000. And Pete, as the designer of this, can you tell us a little bit about that process of sort of dreaming these things up? And, uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes you said is that I think about everything from the perspective of a marble. You know, I mean, that's such an interesting way to look at life, but it's it's developed into this really cool project. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, Well, I... So I like to build a lot of Rube Goldberg machines when I was a kid, and I constantly look at the interactions of everyday items and the shapes of things, like, um, you know, uh, on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, you know, on the highway. You know, those are ramps. Those are marble ramps. Those are, like, those are amazing uh, designs for pinball ramps i'm just like i soak them in you know whenever i especially in like chicago oh my god there's so many on ramps and off ramps there it's crazy but um you know things like um it's just the the trying to reproduce a um an interaction in on the micro scale in the pin box is is such a fun challenge. I love doing that. I'm like, oh, okay, so this balances, and I want to try to just have this feeling um, be reproduced. And and so, um, like, how do I make this wall the correct angle to have the force push the marble uh, in the correct uh, direction? Um, and, you know, I'll just get masking tape, and I'll get cereal boxes, and I'll just cut them up and and just do it until it works and so a lot of people will ask like oh do you use cad to design your games i'm like no i i just have played this game a thousand times trying to make it so that it just flows really nicely because i just i love marble tracks and all of that the feeling that you get when you see something move in a really smooth way it's the same thing with you know with the pin box and it's all just repetition and, and sort of just looking at what the marble does and wants to do um that just yeah gets me really excited like i'll i'll start building in an area of the pin box and then i'll see what happens after the marble interacts with, with that area be like oh where do you want to go oh you want to like sort of fling over to that right side okay i'll build something over there that might like catch you and then you have to interact with it in a different way you know and so I just, I think I just learned something about you that you oh. talk to the pin box as you play. Like, Where do you want to go, little buddy? Oh, you yeah, I know. Exactly. I definitely do that. Yeah. Oh, that was weird. Okay, I'll help you out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you getting stuck? 
oh, okay, I'll make a little wall there. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting, Pete, as you're talking about that, that procedure, like a lot of people, I think once, once we get older, we get more stuck in our ways. We stop to under, we stop understanding that like play is actually our goal. You know, Mm -hmm. like no one wants to go to work and have a miserable time. No one wants to go interact with people and and have a bad time. There has to be a spirit of play everywhere. Um, And it, it is important. I mean, when I think about like architecture, like architect Frank Gehry knows nothing about computers and everything he does is literally playing with cardboard. And it's like, oh, look, it's that new building at the Vatican um, because of that spirit of play. And there's transitionary elements within this. Um, I got a few other questions for you guys, but I want to make sure I make some space for you guys to talk a little bit more about the Kickstarter. Uh, One of the things I'm curious about is, you know, you talked a little bit about the way in which Kickstarter has that sort of democratic nature of I'm putting something up. Do people care? Depending on how people interact with this is going to determine whether or not there's a space for that. And clearly there is. Um, But can you guys tell us a little bit about why this funding option is important for you and sort of like where you guys hope this project takes you? Um, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we got those, we got that sensation of doing two Kickstarters I know eight years ago and then seven years ago and knowing that there were backers out there from all over the world who were interested in sharing this project with us in a way that was supportive. You know, that's, that's the goal is that you have backers who support your process. They understand that yes, UPS workers might go on strike tomorrow. That could throw a wrench in the works. You know that the cost of cardboard may fluctuate because of, wildfires in Canada, these things start happening. But your backers are there to kind of because they see the jewel hiding in that in in the idea that you're trying to present. So I think, you know, we we thought this is a great place to come back to after, you know, eight years, seven years, um, to just see if if they were if we could still kind of stir up that category again, you know, and see who is still out there. You know, a lot of the games category in Kickstarter are like, a lot of those games are done deals. Like they don't really need the money. They're just uh, there to kind of pre-order. You know, their their production is already lined up. They've got everything ready. For us, mm-hmm. this is a genuine ask. We 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 have been in production now for seven years. However, this product is it's a tipping point. You know, if if we don't make this happen, then we'll have a longer road. Maybe we'll get there. We don't know. Um, but this whole project has been very bootstrapped from the very beginning. Um, luckily, we're in a great position now to really try to invest a little more time and effort into this new phase, um, thanks to a lot of efforts of other people and other supporters over the years, um, who people who believe in us, educators, uh, friends of ours, angel investors, they've all been kind of down the road with us and shared our passion and our enthusiasm for this funky little project. So I think it's just a great way for us to share our story once again, you know, from the ground up. Like we need to constantly be telling people, yes, this is our story. This is our product. This is who we are. And we made this video kind of with the mind of like, let's be authentic. Whatever that means, let's just be authentic. <laughs> let's try not to overreach our uh, the way we present ourselves. Like we're some kind of like, glorified professionals with who've got everything together. No, let's set up our, a phone in our studio. We should talk about the thing without a script. We'll put that together and that will be the way it is. 
hopefully yeah, people def- respond to that uh, authenticity. Yeah, that's what we got. Definitely authentic. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I'm just so excited about this next phase and I really hope the Kickstarter goes off because I feel like we're finally at this point where we have this dream team and we have found we have you know worked so hard to get the design system figured out where you know we've got all of these aspects that we could just plug in to the play field now, wherever we want to and create all these new games. And, you know, it, it feels like, you know, having created the pin box that was inventing one thing. I mean, it was inventing 37 things that form one thing. Um, and then, then you have, all of the other pieces and paper parts and 3d printed things and widgets and doodads that they were all invented from scratch also so it's like all of these things were all invented to make this system this robust you know creation zone and oh it's so exciting i'm so excited to see all of these you know, games come to fruition and coming into reality. There's so many different games that we already have created, um, you know, with like hot glue and, and you know, paper and, and things like that, that we want to convert into kits. And um, just like the Neon Wizard and House of Shadows. And it's like, oh, that one would be such a good game. And this one would be such a good game. And it's just like, I just get so excited. Um, so, yeah, it just feels like we're right on this precipice of radness. And what's right. really cool about that, if I can piggyback on that, is that this might be the first time that kids get introduced to pinball as a concept when they start playing the Pinbox 3000. So they have games. They When they think of games, they think of one thing specifically. Usually it's Minecraft or something like that. But when they play a pinball game, like we've been playtesting these two games in particular all summer so far, and it's just so fun to watch kids kind of approach it for the first time, not knowing how to launch a ball not knowing that's how to start the game, not knowing how to push the buttons, not knowing what the whole, how, how all this works. And you show them, oh, here's how trick. Like you can catch the ball, you can hold it, you can aim your shots. These are like cool reveals that uh, I think the pinball community should be excited about the Pinbox 3000 for that reason, that there's a whole generation of players and creators coming up from the Pinbox 3000 who will start to hopefully start designing different games that the stuff that we've never seen before based on their experiments with cardboard and paper, which uh, I'd be really excited to see in another 10 years. What happens? I've got a, I've got one former student who uh, it, we did a collaborative pin box design in a computer graphics class I was teaching. And it was uh, some 10th and 11th graders, probably 10 of them. And uh, they decided to make their theme of the game uh about the pets that celebrities own so it was this like game where it was all these designs where they're like oh like what pet does fergie have and like they found all these celebrities and like photoshopped them all together and and whatnot and that student still to this day the one who uh kept the game uh i every time i see uh him or his parents it's 
by the way, the game is still hanging on our wall. And Aww. by the way, anytime we see a pinball machine, we have to play it. And this is a yeah. this is a student who now has graduated from <laughs> from an Ivy League college and has done all these other amazing <laughs> things. And still, that project was uh, sort of stood out. Um, for people that are interested in finding you guys, finding out about this uh, this Kickstarter, what is the best way to to jump on it? I mean, I think the best way is to go to Kickstarter and search for Pinbox 3000. Uh, I can't really get, you know, uh, we have three Kickstarters, two of them that have already concluded, but the one that's currently running, you'll notice is Pinball, Pinbox 3000, uh, Neon Wizard, and House of Shadows on Kickstarter. You can go to pinbox3000.com. Otherwise, if you're listening to this a little later on, uh, we'll have updated products and hopefully those products will appear on our shop. Uh, at pinbox2000.com find us on instagram uh you can find us on tiktok on youtube especially um and other places facebook twitter what else do i got (laughs) all of those Um, yeah like yeah pretty much all the places well, and, you, and you can also find you guys uh, just in your, your own local communities. Uh, ben, exactly. you are doing uh, an after-school program, sort of artist studio uh, thing right now. What's that called if people want to look it up? Uh, that's just CardboardTech.com, and that's CardboardTech.com. You can see the offerings that we do. We do Dungeons & Dragons for after-school programs for middle school kids. We do uh, some maker makering th- makery things. Uh, I do performances and workshops there in my little classroom studio space. The same classroom where we proto- play tested the first prototypes of the Pinbox 3000 is now my own classroom. So oh. in a very interesting little ironic shift of the space. I love it. And then Pete, you're uh, you work for uh, you you well you do cardboard forge for people who want to you know make mm-hmm. armor and weapons out of cardboard, which uh, you gotta you have to go check that out. It's amazing. And then you also work for Adventures in Cardboard, uh, first in New York and now in Minneapolis, um, where kids are essentially doing live action role playing with these giant cardboard uh, suits uh, for as a summer camp option. Is that correct? Yeah, it's like a. Um... It's it's LARPing adjacent. Um, basically, yeah, summer camp where 100 kids battle each other in parks. And it's really awesome. It's really fun. So cardboard is definitely a thread in my life. I can't get away from it. And I don't want to. Awesome. And before I let you guys go, I got one question for each of you that uh, I just is on my brain. Uh, ben, um, you worked with... Uh, Aeneas Mitchell to co-create Hades Town, yeah. uh, which is bonkers. So if you're unf- if you've been sleeping under a rock and you don't know what Hades Town is, eight-time Tony Award-winning musical. Uh, actually, I'm in Syracuse, New York right now. It'll be coming here in the fall, uh, I believe. But uh, you you're listed as sort of co-conceiver, and you directed some early iterations of it. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, another thing that came out of the Lane Industry Cafe was. Aeneas and I started collaborating on this project that was over 10 years ago now where, you know, she entrusted me with being the director, designer. I played Hermes in the first two productions. We toured around Vermont. We recruited all our musician friends and all the cafe employees to come along with us. We similarly, like with all the other shows I've done, just kind of stitched everything together with what we had. And, uh, you know, we created a little... Uh, American myth 
you know, in Hades town. So I was a part of the writing process where just trying to conceive of the story, uh, flesh it out in terms of how it plays on stage, doing the interstitial, uh, interstitial themes, uh, interstitial scenes and the themes of the show, some of the through lines, you know, I've, I worked on it for about 10 years before it uh, made its way to Broadway. Amazing. And if you uh, if you find Ben T. Matchstick on Instagram, you can see some really cool uh, preliminary drawings um, and things like that that have I feel like evolution is the theme of our conversation today evolved yeah. into uh, what it is. But I just I think it's so cool that that spirit of play uh, mm. and this collaborative cafe that you developed, you know, incubated into something that uh, really takes the spirit of Vermont to, to Broadway, which I think is pretty Absolutely. awesome. Yes. Good way of putting it. Thank you. Uh, and Pete, uh, equally famous. I gotta, I gotta ask about this. Uh, you drove the oh, tour bus for a cat circus called the Amazing Act Actro Cats. Um, what? <laughs> yeah. How does one fall into that hustle? <laughs> um, uh, I was parked in Austin, Texas, in my school bus that I had converted into like an RV kind of a situation. Um, and that's where I was, you know, working on with Trouble Puppet, making the sets and puppets. And, um, and I was doing some, you know, Craigslist hustles, like assembling office furniture for startups. And that was fun and, and weird. And, and, you know, and then I saw this tour bus driver needed and I'm like, well, I live in a bus. So, um, and then it said for a cat circus, I'm like, what? I love cats. And so, <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, this is kind of perfect for me. So, um, it was a short term job where I drove from, um, Austin, Texas to, um, New Orleans. And, uh, that was, that was great. It was only a few days for that trip. Um, but it was, amazing there were 16 cats on the bus um which is so many lives in cat <laughs> lives <laughs> and i was like oh my god if i crash this bus that's like 190 <laughs> lives or something it was, it was a lot of lives um and so uh but it went great and then they asked me back to drive an, another time um and also film a tv reality tv pitch um, a sizzle reel for this for the um for that being a show which was its own insanity and it was just like totally wild um it didn't get picked up um not yet anyway um but yeah it was it was a really fun experience um samantha martin is the head of the acro cats and she goes around um with uh Polly Polly is the tech person who's a total rock star and um they go and adopt cats and then train them and they will also take um all the cats from kill shelters and then adopt them out at shows so she's adopted out over I mean pr probably hundreds of cats now um from Molly's kill shelters which is totally amazing um and these cats do legit tricks like balancing on balls suspended in the air um and you know climbing up and grabbing ropes and pulling up these like little flags and going on skateboards and all this, and it was just ridiculous and like this is the funnest job <laughs>
That's so awesome. Well, if uh, anybody out there is in need of entertainment, uh, I hear that the Amazing Acrocats are actually on tour right now. Um, yeah. And, and, and they're coming to Minneapolis. They're coming to Minneapolis. Yeah. And uh, Town is also on tour. So, you know, if you need the, the full uh, Cardboard Tech Institute experience, you got to <laughs> see both of them. You got to go to the Kickstarter. Uh, you need to build a Pinbox 3000 and have that experience. Uh, and then next time you see Ben and Pete, high five them. Yes. Yes. Pinball based learning. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the PBL that everybody should need. Yeah. Yeah. No one needs projects. We're just going to narrow it to pinball. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Pete. Uh, Pete and Ben, you guys are are wonderful. Is there anything that uh, we didn't cover anything that you'd like to sort of chime in about before we depart? Uh, I want to send a shout out to all the people in Montpelier recently who have been affected by the flood downtown. This is down the hill from where I live. Uh, all of our downtown has been wiped out. All of the interiors of all these beautiful storefronts that made Montpelier so wonderful have been gutted. There's piles of garbage in the streets now. The streets are closed. We're waiting for FEMA to come pick up all the garbage. Uh, it is a it's a real tragedy that our capital city looks the way it does right now. If you have it in you and you want to find a way to support this uh, effort, uh, please find one of the many uh, organizations that are collecting money to help support the downtown businesses. Um, or if there, you can find any other way to support uh, this community, um, we would really appreciate it. Uh, we Cardboard Tech was unaffected by this, but I, I can't really say that because every day I walk downtown and I talk to every business person down there and they've all been con contribu contributed to this kind of spirit of play that you're talking about. And uh, it's really sad. And I don't know when we're going to have our downtown back, but um, look into it. Take a look at, um, yeah, and let's fight climate change. <laughs> uh well guys thanks so much this has been an absolute uh an actual absolute pleasure thanks ryan oh, this thanks, has been ryan. a blast it's been so fun yeah. i'm not sure about you but that whole conversation made me want to revisualize a refrigerator box maybe i can turn it into a sled or a castle or some accessories for a pin box 3000 maybe i can have like a mini office inside or just a new nap capsule. So many things I could do. My brain is now thinking about cardboard engineering. Thanks to Pete and Ben. I really appreciate having them on. If you're interested in learning more about their projects, please check out the Pinbox 3000 website, pinbox3000.com, P-I-N-B-O-X 3000.com. Additionally, thanks for joining me for the first episode of Meditations with Ryan's Lomek. Additional special thanks to Gabs Daniel for logo design. We will be back on August 16th with Nick Parisi, who's a uh, specialist, uh, very knowledgeable individual about the writer Rod Serling. We're going to head into the Twilight Zone, talk about Rod Serling's impact on the city of Binghamton and the city of Binghamton's impact on Rod Serling, talk about the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, the importance of putting up a statue to a literary hero, and just generally chat about the important things that Rod Serling has done from creating The Twilight Zone, the TV show The Loner, Night Gallery, writing tons of teleplays. It's just going to be neat. If you have any questions about this podcast, if you're interested in being a sponsor, feel free to send an email to meditations at ryanslomack.com. And lastly, and most importantly, 
make sure you make space for conversations because you just might learn something. Have a great one.